Thank you, David. And uh, we really appreciate the hospitality of Pastor Moore and his wife today and the welcome we've received here down in Points Pass. My children and wife are asking me how to spell Points Pass <laughs> on the way down the road. And they've had to learn an awful lot of strange names since they came here a couple of years ago. And they're still struggling with a hochel and Collie Beggy up there. We're living at the moment up near Brasheen and uh, the kids go to school there in Balamina. So all these names are strange. Esther chapter 2 this evening. And Esther chapter 2, we want to look at God's way of promotion. Because it may seem that Esther wins the big prize in this chapter 2 to become Queen of Persia. But we'll discover it's far from a happy arrangement. Now we saw this morning how God orchestrated the events through providence for Vashti to be removed from the throne. Now in chapter 2 we're going to see how God working behind the scenes will enable Esther to come to the fore. This is a penniless Jewish orphan and she's going to become queen of the greatest empire the world had ever known up until that point. But she'll discover it's not going to be a happy union. She'll discover that when you do the wrong thing, the wrong way, ultimately there'll be consequences. But let's see chapter 2 first. Let's read it together. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that administered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that we may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, in the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women. Let them things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification. 
with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens, which were meet to be given out, out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Mordecai walked every day before the house of the woman's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished. To wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odours, and with other things for the purifying of the woman. And thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go out with her out of the house of the woman unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the woman to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihal, Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai. He told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Amen. God will bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this infallible witness, this infallible guide that we have without mistake, without any failure within it, that has all the power, all the knowledge, all the wisdom that we need to get through this life. And Lord, we pray that you would just open our hearts and minds to it this evening, 
And may we say like little Samuel of old, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We pray for any in our midst who are yet outside of Christ, that this would be the night that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, Vashti is one of the most tragic characters in this book. Because when we first meet her, she appeared to have it all. She had the looks. She had the power. She had the position. She had the favor of the so-called greatest man on this earth. No doubt, whenever she went, people respected her. People feared her. No doubt her servants were terrified of her. But in just a short time, she lost it all, didn't she? How fickle, how capricious are the things of this world. You may be strong today. You may seemingly be riding the crest of the wave today, but tomorrow you could be in the scrap heap of life. Don't build your life upon the popularity of the world around us. Vashti is a classic illustration of the foolishness of this. Now, a number of years have passed between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, although it's not immediately apparent when you read the book of Esther. But if you study the detail carefully, you discover that at least three years had passed from the deposing of Vashti and the elevation of Esther. And the historians tell us in that period, King Ahasuerus suffered a great setback, a military setback when he tried to fight with the Greeks and overcome the Greeks and was defeated in a humiliating defeat. So now he has retreated back to his palace, humiliated for the second time, licking his wounds. No doubt he's hearing the rumors that his position is under threat, that maybe the Greeks will attack, or maybe an internal rival will take the opportunity to commit regicide and kill the king, and seize the throne. So it's a very unstable time. It's a very uncertain time for this man. And in a drunken rage, he deposed his favorite woman. He had many women that made up his harem of wives and concubines. But his favorite Vashti, he had got rid of. And no doubt as he had come back to lick his wounds, he suddenly remembered her. In the loneliness, in the uncertainty of his current position. And we're told in verse 1 that he remembered Vashti. He was at peace. His anger cooled down. And he suddenly remembered the good times that he had had with this woman. Maybe even his conscience was tinged or twinged by the memory. And now the king is volatile and uncertain. And everybody knows when the tyrant is upset and the tyrant is volatile, it's dangerous for everybody, especially those who are nearby. And his advisors come together in verse 2 and they said, here's the plan. 
to distract and appease this lustful tyrant, Ahasuerus, because that's what he is. This is no Cinderella story. The marriage of Esther and Ahasuerus. This is a man of volatility and anger and ruthlessness and full of lust. And we're told his servants come up with this plan and they say, why don't we have a Miss Persia contest and go around all the empire and gather to get from the, all the women of the empire, the young women of the empire, the best looking ones, the most attractive ones. And then here's their plan of that group that are selected Every night, one of them will have the opportunity to spend the night with Ahasuerus. And then, after he has gone through this new harem of women, he will select one to replace Vashti as the new queen. That's the plan. And they present this to the king, and we're told... The thing pleased the king. Verse 4. And he did so. Now if you remember in chapter 1. Ahasuerus was persuaded. Because of family values. Because of the moral fabric of Persia. Might be torn apart if the women heard. That Vashti disobeyed her husband. And he's all self-righteous. Yes we must honour the moral fabric of our society and the values of our society and she must go. She was cut off. But the so-called moral family values of Ahasuerus didn't last very long because now he's presented with this array of young women and he's told you can take advantage of them all for one night and then cast them aside like rags. Live whatever way you want and then just choose one to be your queen. Oh, he's very impressed with that idea. Suddenly lost his interest in honor and dignity and family values. You'll also notice that in this proposal to Ahasuerus, there's no mention of character. Sure there's not. Chapter 1 was all about, oh, well, Vashti, she's disobedient and we can't have a woman of disobedient character Coming to the throne and being the first lady of the nation. Oh, forgot about that very quickly, didn't they? And that's the way the world lives. And although many would have thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Particularly for a foreigner. Particularly for an orphan girl. A Jewish girl. This man, Ahasuerus, is not good material for a husband. In fact, he's the very opposite of good material for a husband. There's nothing heartwarming about the relationship between Esther and Ahasuerus. Now, I say all of that because many of you will have grown up reading the little children's story Bibles. And maybe going to these women's conferences and the whole focus of the stories tends to be on, oh, what a wonderful Romantic story it is how Esther, she became the queen and 
what, what a beautiful young woman and what a talented young woman and how brave and courageous she was. And she's really a role model. And many Christians' minds, she should be in Hebrews chapter 11 with all the heroes of the faith. But you notice when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, she's not there. No one sings dare to be an Esther. In fact, we're told, and we have to suspect the reason why. And twice in this chapter, we're told that Esther hid her faith, hid even her Jewish identity. And when she joined this harem of potential wives for Ahasuerus, she did nothing outwardly in terms of diet in terms of lifestyle that let anybody know that she was a child of a Jew. That she was from a race of people that didn't eat certain foods because they were a holy people. That didn't drink certain things because they were a holy people. And certainly didn't marry certain types of pagans because she was from a holy race. Oh no, not Esther. And who was encouraging her? To live like this. Who was encouraging her to indulge like this? Her uncle Mordecai. So as you read this story. And I don't. I am trying to burst a few bubbles right up front. In this series. Don't be too impressed by Mordecai. And don't be too impressed by Esther. And deliberately the Bible has avoided putting them into Hebrews chapter 11. Because there's not an awful lot to admire. Particularly in these early chapters, in the choices they make. Now you may say, well, surely it's sensible to hide your Jewish identity. Daniel didn't. When Daniel went down to Babylon, he didn't hide. In fact, when we meet Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, he's just a teenage boy. Maybe younger than Esther. The Jewish writers say he was about 15 or 16 years of age. And yet him and his young friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, we're not going to compromise our faith. We're not going to give in one inch of the truth of God's word. That's why we got into the exile in the first place. That's why our people lost their homeland. Lost the temple. Because they wouldn't obey God's word. And we're not going to budge one inch. In fact, the Bible says, and Daniel determined in his heart. And then we meet Daniel as a middle-aged, powerful, wealthy ruler down in Babylon. And when he has to confront the king, Nebuchadnezzar, about his pride, he does so fearlessly. He tells the king, you're not the ruler who rules this world. There's a God above you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's greater than you. And your kingdom's not going to last forever, Nebuchadnezzar, because it's going to be replaced by another kingdom. Another race of people will take over. And he was fearless and courageous and truthful to Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar was put down in pride by God and humbled by God for a number of years, Daniel never missed in saying, Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself. You've sinned against God. And even as an old man over 80 years of age, in Daniel chapter 6, when he faced having his bones crushed by lions, the Bible says Daniel, as he did aforetime, got on his knees. And as the scriptures told him to look towards Jerusalem, 
And he prayed three times a day. 75,000 seasons of prayers in 70 years down in Babylon. And he just kept living. Consistent. Wouldn't budge an inch. Esther, oh dear. The, th the hope of just getting the favor of a tyrant like this man, Ahasuer, she was willing to sell everything. Her purity, her faith, her family, just to be recognized for a night by a man like this. And Mordecai encouraged her. I always think when I think of Esther, the contrast. You say, well, she was a young girl. Daniel was a boy. Well, what about Naaman? Had a little maid from Israel in his house. And when Naaman was a leper, and no doubt it was a difficult home to live in with such a man, a military man, an ungodly man, a man suffering this terminal disease. You can imagine the anger, the frustration, the volatility of such a home. And yet this little girl, who'd lost her family, who'd lost her home, who'd lost her identity, snatched away to be a permanent slave for the rest of her days, she was fearless to tell old Naaman, there's a man of God in Israel. And if you just get to him, God will heal you. God will have mercy upon you. So don't make any excuses for Esther when you read this story. And don't make any excuses for yourself with the choices you make. And those who you get involved with and turn around and blame circumstances and blame people who encourage you in those circumstances because Daniel and the little maid are testament to you and I tonight that you don't have to make the wrong choice. You can make the right choice. And you can live and work for God in the most corrupt and ungodly of places. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to get in. It's always wrong. Always wrong to do the wrong thing. Let me say that again. It sounds simple, but it's profound. It's always wrong to do the wrong thing. And if Esther needed a husband, she could have trusted God. God could have found her a godly husband. Ruth was a Moabitess, wasn't she? A widow, a foreigner, penniless. In fact, she was so poor, she had to go and glean the, uh, the most humiliating, difficult. Indeed, Boaz tells us it was a dangerous job. There were people who would take advantage of her out in the fields. And yet, when she was came to the crossroads with her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law. And Naomi, a backslider, said to her, you go back to your gods. Go back to your people. You'll have a better life there. She said, what? God forbid. God forbid that I should go back to the life that I once lived. God forbid that I would go back to the gods that I once worshipped. She tells her, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And I'm just going to trust God to take care of me. And who did providence lead her? 
the very first day she went out to work, which field did her feet set foot in? Of all the fields in Bethlehem, which place did her feet walk into first? The field of what? Boaz. And who was Boaz? He was a descendant of Rahab, the foreigner. Rahab, the fallen woman. Rahab, the saved by grace, former harlot, who no no doubt taught her son to be gracious and generous and, and to be like her towards the stranger and towards the foreigner and how gracious he was. And through the circumstances of their meeting, they took time to observe one another and it wasn't long before God brought that couple together in a beautiful union. And we know the story didn't end there because from that couple came the son Obed. And then you trace it down to Jesse and then King David and then you trace it all the way to Matthew chapter 1. And who's at the end of the family tree? The Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Ruth could trust the Lord. A foreigner, a Gentile, born in paganism, a widow. She could trust the God she had come to love and serve to lead her to the right man in the right place at the right time. And he did. He didn't just give her a husband. He gave her the best husband in Israel. The godliest husband. So Esther didn't need to play this game. And I'm taking a long time to make this point this evening. Because there may be people here. Or you may have children. Or even grandchildren. That you will have the opportunity to speak to. And point them in the right direction. If you marry an unbeliever, remember this, if you're a child of God, the devil is now your father-in-law. Because Jesus said, you're off your father the devil, the ungodly. And if you're a child of God and you bring the devil's disciple into your home, well, expect there to be turbulence. Expect there to be problems. Expect there to be challenges and difficulties. Now, on the face of it, things worked out well for Esther. Because number one, she was selected out of all the women in Persia. On the first round of the audit of all the girls of Persia, she was chosen. Wow, luck? Coincidence? No. God was working behind the scenes. Not because he approved of Esther's choices and Esther's ambitions, but because God can work through imperfect people with imperfect choices. Because God had a higher plan and a greater plan than Esther or Mordecai's plan. And then within the selection We're told in verse 9, and the maiden pleased him. This was the man Haggai. The man who was responsible for preparing these young women to satisfy the lusts of this tyrant. Providence was at work and we're told she obtained kindness of him. He showed favor to her. And then we're told that he preferred her, verse 9. 
Again, God's working behind the scenes. Remember what we said this morning about providence? It's God working in the shadows. And here's God opening the doors or removing the obstacles for Esther to allow her to go up the greasy pole. Not because, as I said, God approved of her choices and her ambition and her desires, but in spite of them, God's opening the door. And then we're told that, verse 11, And Mordecai walked every door, every day, before the court of the woman's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. You get a sense here, don't you? That Mordecai's not at peace. No longer can see his beloved niece. And yes, she's got through the first round of the tyrant's competition. But Mordecai, deep in his heart, is not fully satisfied. He's anxious. He's uncertainty. And you know, doing wrong and making the wrong choices in life, whether it's career, whether it's relationships, whether it's business dealings, if you do the wrong thing, expect to live your life like this, anxious, fearful, uncertain. The Bible says, great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Thou shalt keep them in perfect peace whose mind is what? Set on thee. Mordecai wasn't walking the right way and Esther wasn't walking the right way. And you get a sense that here's a man who's made his choices, but he's not happy with his choices. He's not content with his choices. And Mordecai is as culpable as Esther. And this is no romantic tale because we're told in verse 14, she'll go into this man's house, his bedroom, and in the evening on the morrow she returned unto the custody of women or the house of the women, to the custody of this man, Shagaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubine. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she was called by name. So that's, that's the life. That's the choice. Uncertainty, unhappiness, at the whims of this man, maybe never to be ever called again left to live out the rest of her days as a concubine in the harem that belonged to this wicked king, Ahasuerus, this ungodly king. What a choice she's now made. And now she's stuck. And we can imagine what it's like living in such a place. The jealousies, the insecurities, the uncertainties. And here's Esther. She has done what she liked. But now she's going to discover she's not going to like what she does. It's not going to bring her happiness. It's not going to bring Mordecai happiness. And it's not going to bring Ahasuerus happiness. It might last for a little season, but not long. Not permanent. And sin is always like that. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11... We see a contrast 
Hebrews chapter 11, we have the story of a choice that a young person made that changed the whole direction of their lives. We're told in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years. So he, he, he now became a teenager, a man, a young man, just like Esther. It says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now why did he turn his back? Now bear in mind the context is very similar. Moses was offered the wealth of Egypt. And Egypt at this moment in history was the world's most powerful empire. Was the world's wealthiest empire. Egypt at this time in its history was the world's most knowledgeable empire. We still don't know to this day how they built the pyramids. We still can't replicate the way they built the pyramids. They were a very intelligent, knowledgeable, wise people. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, the Bible says. He had the ability to absorb all that knowledge and all that instruction and all that science and astronomy and mathematics that he was taught. And he was handed the throne of Egypt with all its wealth and privilege and power, he was offered it. And he said no. Why? Esther, you can be sure, would have said yes. But why did Moses say no? Read on. Verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures. And notice the words pleasures in plural. Oh, he was offered the opportunity. They were accessible to him in his position as Pharaoh's son. He was offered all the pleasures of sin. He was young enough as well to enjoy many decades in the things of this world. And it says he was offered the pleasures of sin. But then it's these words come. And this is where it changed Moses. Three words. For a season. For a season. Moses understood that day. That yes the world around us has pleasures to offer. There's temptations there that are real. And if they weren't real. You wouldn't be tempted. <laughs> right? If sin wasn't attractive. You wouldn't be attracted to it. The devil knows how to put the bait on the hook. And Moses, as he looked around Egypt that day, he could see these pleasures, but he also could see beyond them, and he could see they wouldn't last, just for a season. And you know, the devil's still selling a bad bargain in points fast, isn't he? He's still telling the young people today, you can go out and enjoy the world, don't, don't be held back by the, the thinking of the old folk. These people are out of date. And they tell you morality has moved on. We're in the 21st century now. 
That's an outdated thinking. And love is love and relationships are whatever you want them to be. Moses weighed that all up. As you must weigh it up. And he analyzed it carefully. He did a, a spiritual audit. And when he did the spiritual audit, he realized these things will only last for a season. And then it goes on to say this in the next verse. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he would respect unto the recompense of the reward. He saw beyond Egypt. He saw beyond this life. He saw right into eternity. And Moses saw that at the end of the journey of life, whatever choice you make takes you to heaven or hell. And he says, I'm going to heaven. I'll take Christ. I'll take salvation. I'll leave the sin. And almost like that little course, I have decided to follow Jesus. Moses said that day in Egypt. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided. The world behind me. Egypt behind me. The cross before me. No turning back. And he never went back. Never wavered. Never did an Esther. Because he made the right choice. That day. As a young man. Down in Egypt. And you know. Esther should have been aware of Moses' choice because it was before her time. Esther should have walked in the footsteps of Moses. And so should Mordecai. Mordecai should have been like Amram and Jochebed and said, no, we're going to do right. But he didn't. And now the price has to be paid. Because Esther, we're told in verse 16... Of Esther chapter 2 was taken into or unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth in the seventh year of his reign. And it says, and the king loved Esther. Wow. She's won the big prize. She's number one in the contest out of all the women in Persia. She's no longer just in the select group. She's got to the very top. And she's the queen. And she's got the crown. You could say she gained the world. That day. When Ahasuerus said to her, you're the choice. And no doubt everybody in Persia. Particularly all the young women in Persia. Were jealous of her. No doubt they all said, oh, I wish it had been me instead of her. And maybe even Esther told herself for a few moments, a few days, oh, I'm going to be so happy. I've got the, the most important position. I'm the new Vashti. But here's the problem. If you marry a man like Ahasuerus, you have to live with a man like Ahasuerus. And if he lied to his first wife and cast her aside on a whim, and take advantage of her on a whim, he'll do the same to you. He'll do the same to you. Remember this, the man or the woman who lies to you about someone else will lie about you to someone else. Never forget that. 
The man or the woman who gossips to you about some other person, even a Christian, remember this, they'll do the same to you. Never trust someone like this. The leper doesn't change his thoughts. That's what the Bible says. And Esther should have been wise enough, and particularly Mordecai should have been wise enough to know that if this man did this to Vashti, who wasn't a Jew, oh, he'll do it to an orphan Jew without even thinking about it. Sure enough, she's now got the crown, but what an unhappy life she is going to live. It seems the compromise has worked. It seems that the relationship is going to go forward. It seems that Esther is going to be happy now. But as we go on through this book, we'll discover this marriage is not going to bring her happiness. Going to bring her a lot of problems. We'll discover as we read through this book that Ahasuerus will go around chasing other women. We'll discover in this book that her life going, is going to be at risk many times now. And uneasy is going to wear the crown. For this woman, Esther, this is by far from a trust worthy husband but let me finish by saying this who's working behind the scenes in this story God is and even the last three verses record an incident which in many ways if you were writing the story seem out of place like a little parenthesis set along in the side of how Mordecai discovered this plot to the king and how the matter was recorded and how he was unrewarded when the matter was recorded. But God's just put it there. The Holy Spirit just put that there to let you know, keep, keep reading, keep watching. Because although Mordecai is unaware that God's at work, although Esther's not aware that God's at work. And certainly Ahasuerus is not aware that God is at work. You're going to discover by the time we get to Esther chapter 10 that all of these events, God is weaving a beautiful pattern through to accomplish his great will and his great purpose. Now we live in a world that's full of crisis, don't we? Just over two years ago, the U.S. Secretary or security advisor, a man called Sullivan, was in Europe. And he was boasting about how peaceful the world is. And we're having a period, he says, of unprecedented peace. And armies are being scaled back. Two years later, nobody's talking about the world of peace anymore. Isn't that right? Not just in the Middle East, but in Taiwan. And Ukraine. And they're now talking openly in the newspapers this week about World War III. New language, isn't it? And what man thought 
he could do without God and live without God is not looking so rosy anymore. Oh, with hindsight, you're starting to see the unfolding of history. And this book tells us what you're seeing today is only the beginning of problems. In fact, the Bible says the great tribulation period which is about to hit this world. I can tell you now, it's about to hit this world. Is so graphic is so terrible that Jesus himself says there's never been a time like this in history. The Holocaust, nothing. The World War II, nothing compared to what's going to hit this world. The great plague of the Middle Ages is nothing compared to what's going to hit this world. And it's easy to get unnerved, to lose your mind. And even some Christians get depressed and they call the pastors and say, I'm depressed, I'm worried, I'm anxious. Well, what's the solution? Go back to the book. Go back to the stories of the book of Esther. And you'll discover that behind history is his history. And as the old commentators say, his story is really history. Isn't that right? God's story. Because history is not about man. History is about God. And his purposes. And his plans. And he says to you and I. doesn't say to the unbelievers. Because he can't say this to them. He says, for we know that all things, not some things. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God. To them who are the called according to his great purpose. All things. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in points past that all things are working together for good? Do you believe that God's really in control of our land? Do you believe that God's working out a great plan and purpose for this world? And it's going to end when the feet of Jesus Christ touch the Mount of Olives. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And there's not going to be an election to determine who's right and who's wrong. He's going to rule and that's it. And the Bible says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, that's God's plan. That's God's purpose. And I can tell you it's coming. It's coming. And as you read the book of Esther, you're just seeing the weaving of God's plan through each chapter. And likewise, as you look around the world today, you see the weaving of God's plan unfolding. Old John Wesley used to say when someone said, do you read the newspaper, Mr. Wesley? He says, I do. And they said, why? He says, I read the newspaper to see what God is doing in this world. Well, that's the right way to look at it. We read the newspaper to see what man's doing, don't we? And we even talk, did you see what so-and-so said? Did you see what so-and-so did? Did you see what that team did or that other team did? Did you see what that politician's doing? No. We should ask ourselves when we read the newspaper, did you see what God's doing? God's at work. 
I was in Ballybean last Sunday night speaking. And I said to the folk there in East Belfast, I said, there's only two teams. There's not the Protestant team or the Catholic team. There's not the Rangers or the Celtic team. It's not the Manchester United or the Liverpool team. It's not the rich or the poor, as the communists tell us, teams that make up this world. There's just the two teams. There's God's team and there's the devil's team. And you make your choice, which one you join, which one you're with. And the only basis of being in God's team is salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. He says what? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Didn't say whosoever shall join Points Past Baptist Church. I'm sure you'd be delighted if you had a whole lot of new members. But that's not how it gets you into heaven. It doesn't even say whosoever gets baptized. I see you have a little tank there. And I know your pastor's a very strong Baptist. Mr. Piazzi used to say, wetter but not better. He's Baptist. He's a good, strong Baptist. But you know, being baptized doesn't get you any closer to heaven. Doesn't get you one inch closer to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. Baptist or Presbyterian. Black or white, rich or poor. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you can't save yourself. Call upon him and ask for forgiveness. And the dying thief as he hung there on the cross with just minutes to go, he looked to the Lord Jesus and he said what? Lord, remember me. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. When thou comest into thy kingdom. He was a premillennialist, by the way, that dying thief. He knew the kingdom was coming. And what did Jesus say today? Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Don't leave here tonight unsaved. Don't walk out here on the Broadway when the narrow way is open to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We pray that you would take it and apply it to our hearts. We pray especially to those who are outside of Christ, those who are walking the wrong way, the broad way. We pray for those in our midst who may be backslidden, making wrong choices in wrong relationships, going the wrong direction as a child of God, more like Lot than Abraham. We pray, Lord, that you would arrest them you would convict them. And as you did to Lydia by the river in Philippi, open their heart that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.